Well, amen, amen. Hey, uh, can we also, again, in addition to just uh, praising our praise and worship team, can we praise God that this morning you decided to turn on the air conditioning? And uh, yeah, <laughs> it, is, it is wonderful out there. And if you want it to be wonderful in here and feel like this all the time, next week we're voting on air conditioning as well as our handicapped ramp uh, out in the front. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I am Josh. I am the youth and young adult pastor here. And I've gotten the question a couple times of, hey, uh, aren't you a little afraid to be preaching in big church? To which I have responded, absolutely not. You see, adults, they want to be here. You actually listen. And I don't have to worry about what's going on in the back row. So again, I am very excited, very uh, privileged to get to share a little bit of God's word with you all this morning uh, as it relates to this question, what is Sabbath? But I wanted to ask you a question first that you're probably used to hearing and don't give too much thought to. How are you? How are Wonderful. Again, I, I've gotten, we, I've, last service we got, I got a lot of tired, busy Wonderful is good, right? And some of us, maybe we are wonderful. But maybe some of us, right, when we, when, we, when we ask that question, it's exhausting to give how we really feel. You know, instead, instead of talking about how we really feel, we give them the good old New England, good are you? Right? <laughs> yeah. Um, but when, we, when, we, when we're asked by a friend, a loved one, someone who we know really well, we'll often say, yeah, I'm, I'm doing okay. Life is busy, a little bit stressful, got a lot going on, wish there was more time in the day. It's almost assumed now that our lives are busy and filled to the brim with hustle and bustle. Our calendars are chock full, and yet our souls also are crammed to the brim. And the idea of rest feels like a pipe dream something that our souls long for, our hearts desire more than anything, and yet we just can't seem to get it. And when we look at God's word, it's, it's filled with encouragement about peace and rest and stillness. And yet we live in this world that seems to pride itself on you're only worthy if you're doing things. The idea of doing nothing, of being bored, sounds silly and countercultural. So then what do we do then when the immovable word of God collides with the seemingly unbreakable trend of busyness that our culture demands of us? Also, we're going to look at God's word about this morning, but let's start by, uh, by praying. Some of us here this morning, God, we just barely made it. Our souls feel frayed. Our minds are rushing we're already thinking about the tasks that we have to do after service. But God, your word is an elixir to our soul when you say to us, come to me and you will find rest for your souls. So I pray that this morning, as we dive into your word, let it speak to us, let it change us, and let us give us the hope and stillness our souls so desperately crave. It's for your glory we pray. Amen. I want to uh, uh, take us this morning uh, to the dinner table. Um, a few months ago, my wife and I were 
eating with our four-year-old. Now, if any of you have had small children, have small children, you know one thing is true. Dinner time is not rest time, right? In addition to your kid being like, you, in addition to having to explain to your child, no, we cannot make mac and cheese for the 20th time this week, you will eat what I put before you. Every single bite is a battle. After they take a bite, Daddy, I'm full. Can I have dessert now? Have I had enough to eat? Am I full? Can I move on? Right? And then you add to that, not only that, but everything in your house, which your kid has not paid attention to, all day, suddenly becomes the most interesting object in the world. And all of those toys that you bought that are now, now off limits, nope, that is all they want. And so in addition to getting them to fight, you're fighting them to eat the food, you're fighting to keep them at the table, and, and, and I don't even know why we give our kids plates. We lay it out all nice and neat for them, we put it on here, right? And then it just ends up everywhere. They have a great clean plate by the end because all the food is everywhere else. Right? Well, this particular evening, um, my, we, we were giving my daughter her favorite meal. Spaghetti with olive oil and Parmesan cheese. Wonderfully simple, but gloriously messy. And for whatever reason, my four-year-old daughter hated the idea of a fork this evening. Most of the time likes it, but this evening, nope, she just had to get her hands in here and get it all over her face and her new clothes and the floor and the cats. And we all know that olive oil comes out of everything, so, you know, there's no problem with that. Uh, <laughs> but in addition to this, again, she, she thought it would be hilarious to take one piece at a time and throw her head back and just let the olive oil drip down before finally consuming it, like some kind of crazed maniac. And then after each bite, she'd wipe her hands on anything but a napkin. The cats saw they were her favorite. Uh, <laughs> run to the living room to look at some random toy or ask if she could have dessert. Now, my wife and I, trying to set a standard for our daughter of staying at the table while she eats, finished our meal well before she put a dent into hers. And yet, watching her grab singular noodles one by one, dripping unwashable olive oil everywhere, having to repeat the same phrase to her over and over again, no, honey, you cannot have dessert until you're done with your meal, over and over and over and over again, I started to lose my mind. And my wife recalls looking at me in the midst of this, my face in my hands, my eyes open in astonishment, my mouth open in frustration, looking at my daughter eat at what a, snail, a pace a snail would consider to be slow, and she looks at me and asks the question, What's your rush? I look at her and I'm like, my rush? Are you kidding me? My daughter is eating her pasta slower. Again, Christmas will be here by the time my daughter is done eating dinner. And, and I, I, I just want to move on so that I can get on to the later activities of the evening. 
To which my wife again responded, so what? We're in no rush. And you know what? She was right, because she usually is. I just wanted dinner to be over so that I could clean up quickly, put a show on for my daughter to distract her so that I could get my well-deserved me time. What I was missing out on was the opportunity to be fully present in, yes, a stressful, less-than-ideal dinner situation, but I was mentally rushing ahead, not allowing the peace and rest of God to guide my heart and my mind. And I think oftentimes moments like this can act as a microcosm of our lives. We're always rushing on to the next event, next calendar item, practice, meeting, sport, club, TikTok, show, you name it, failing to lean into the rest God wants us to enjoy. We're so caught up in, in moving that we forget to slow down and be still. We're so focused on doing rather than just being. Now, I was really excited when I saw the question submitted, what is the Sabbath? Because quite honestly, for so long, I've been so bad at it. I'm terrible at resting. Any of you who know me are like, yeah, that doesn't surprise me. Right? But honestly, as a church, as a culture, we have this habit of busyness and hurrying and rush that has pervaded and gotten woven into every fabric of our society. John Mark Comer, pastor and author, says that there is a hurry sickness which has entered every single part of our culture. We've never done more in our lives, and yet we've also never been more anxious, sleep-deprived, or burnt out either. We're like a car that's driving behind someone, traveling the speed limit, the audacity, not 10 miles, and over like, 10 miles an hour over like a normal person would. No, they're driving and following the laws of the road. How dare they? And we're frustrated that they're not going fast enough so that we have this temptation. Oh, I could just cross over the double yellow and get to the place I'm going faster than this. Why? Because honestly, if we're real with ourselves, we're often in a rush to get nowhere. Us as Christians, too, can believe the lie that all we need is an hour on a Sunday morning to recharge our spiritual batteries, only to go out into the world the other six and a half days and feel empty, dry, and distant. God knows our hearts. He knows our minds. He created us. He knows our human nature. He understands our proclivity towards hurry and busyness. And for this reason, he commands us, to rest, to let our soul breathe. So this morning, let's lean into that invitation. Let's lean into the gift of God's word to rest in him. We'll go all the way back to the beginning of creation where God, having made everything in six days, also includes the vital aspect of letting our souls be still. On the seventh day, the, gospel, uh, the, the, the author of Genesis records this. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, 
because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. The Hebrew word we see for rest here is Shabbat. Shabbat means to cease, to slow down, to stop. And such as it's his importance that the, the author here mentions that God Shabbated multiple times. And we see on this seventh day, the style of it is markedly different than the other six days. On this seventh day, God does not speak, nor does he work as he, as the, as he has the other six days. No, this day is special. This day he blesses. He makes it holy. The word holy here, sanctified, set apart, different. And the author, too, is likely stressing the importance of Shabbat, rest, ceasing as it relates to the sixth day, the day before this day, where God made human beings in his image. This imago day being made to be like God, and um, as his image bearers, we must strive then to align our lives and our lifestyles to the patterns and actions of the one who created us. Set into the very fabric of creation, the very beginning of time, yes, there were six days of work, but also we see a divine call to stop, be still, and rest. And then the, the author of Genesis goes on to say, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. The word here, put, uh, is, is the word nuach, which means to rest, to settle. That God, again, we see in verses 1 through 3, God does not just stop and cease, but then he actively rests and settles with his people. This nuest, this nuah is a rhythm of rest God builds into our lives as he rests with us. Nuah can be uh, described as the experience we feel when we've been working in our, in our, on our yard all day long, and after all of the sweat, all of the toil, we sit on our, we're sitting on our front porch in a rocking chair, drinking a cold beverage, and resting. It can also be described as the feeling when you finally get to your vacation destination, all of your suitcases are unpacked, and you finally get to lean into the delight that lies before you. The, the author here is making a very important literary connection that God leads by example as he shabbats, stops working, and then he nuas, he rests with his people. And God continues to, the Bible continues to show this connection between stopping and resting as we continue to move through scripture. The next place we see the command to Shabbat to be still is in uh, Moses' conversation about the Ten Commandments. He writes here, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days, God made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now, the Jewish practice of Sabbath would, or Shabbat would start on a Friday night. After the sun has gone down, they would attend a service and then they would go home and have a feast 
Once the feast is over, they would sleep and wake up the next morning, go to a service, have another meal together, and spend time being still with one another and God's word. And the command here is both moral and ceremonial. It is moral in the sense that it requires a person to stop and give of their time in worship and service. Stopping our work here is an act of trust in God, saying, God, I am finite, you are infinite, I trust you that it will get done eventually. And it's also a ceremonial command here with the seventh day prescription as we will begin to parse through as well as we move throughout this morning. Uh, the author here too, again, the, the, the Ten Commandments are given um, at a very important time when Israel is to remember creation, the Garden of Eden, and the pattern of rest that God has woven into the world. Israel is sitting poised to enter into Canaan, the new garden that God has prepared for his people. And while they anticipate that with great excitement, moving into this new land will also require busyness and chaos and even battle as they fight for their place. So therefore, God gives this command to provide healthy order and balance to their lives. But again, not only is the command to rest, to be still, to cease our work, um, a, a, a decree of God, it's also an invitation to follow his lead and do what he himself has already done. God, knowing our finite, limited capacity as human beings, gifts us this time to be still, to cease, to rest, to refresh our souls. And again, while, while that sounds wonderful, right, there, there's always been a little bit of struggle with this verse, particularly as it relates to the word work. The work we see here in Exodus 20 is the word malachna, which means intentional work. And Moses is not exactly clear when he says, you will cease your work, what this means. The word, mean, again, meaning intentional work is something that the history of Judaism has tried to answer but does not fully understand. However, after years of study through the scribes and the prophets and the Pharisees, the, the, the Judaism settled on 39 types of work which were absolutely prohibited, including the tying of loops, the weaving of threads, writing two or more letters, erasing two or more letters, making a fire, completing an object, and transporting an object, among others. The Jews took very seriously the call of God to cease our work. The problem, however, is with such rigid ritual and adherence to intentional work, it can, very be, it can very easily lead us into legalism. And this is one of the precise problems Jesus encountered in his interactions with the Pharisees. See, Jesus comes on the scene and he taught, as he interacts with the Pharisees who are holding such rich, rigid ritualistic understandings of the law, Jesus says, I have come to fulfill the law. And with Sabbath as part of the law, Jesus declaims himself, proclaims himself as Lord of the Sabbath, Lord of rest. Mark and, uh, the gospel writer Mark records this encounter in chapter 2 of his gospel when he says this, One Sabbath he, Jesus, was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him? How he... And, the, 
And the, Pharise- mm, no. <laughs> and the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, you never read what David did? I read that part. How he entered the house of, praise God, we made it. How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat. And also gave it to those who were with him. And he, Jesus, said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And the Pharisees could have been seen as the religious priests, the religious police of the time. And in first century Israel, on the day of Sabbath, people, particularly the needy, were permitted to pluck ears of grain or corn in their neighbor's field, provided they didn't use a sickle. Using a sickle as a tool would have been seen as work. However, with the Pharisees' narrow-minded view of what work was, coupled with their frustration and jealousy of Jesus coming on the scene and taking and showing their, uh, showing their hypocrisy, they would have tried to classify the disciples' actions as harvesting, thereby breaking the Sabbath and attempting to take Jesus down this way. Jesus, seeing this, responds with a story about David partaking of the most, eating of the most holy portion of the offering, which was only supposed to be eaten by priests on the day of the Sabbath. Jesus here is challenging the strict legalistic adherence to Sabbath by stating that if the law's regulations can be set aside for David, who is fleeing for his life, how much more can they be reinterpreted and understood for Jesus and his followers who have come to proclaim the kingdom of God? Jesus is always in the business of sharing the why behind laws rather than just pushing overbearing adherence to them. For this reason, he shares with the Pharisees, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Again, Jesus reminding the Pharisees that Shabbat is set in place by God for the well-being of humanity and our soul, and yet through their overbearing legalism, they have caused it to become a burden and an inhibitor of God's mercy. Jesus is saying this Sabbath, this rest, is a gracious gift given to my people as a release from the exhaustion of a six-day toil. Jesus then finishes this announcement with the declaration that he is the one with the authority over the law and the Sabbath, and these legalistic, burdensome traditions are now rendered null and void. And then the gospel writers are careful to note that Jesus did not just adhere to Sabbath, but he practiced rest on a regular basis. No less than nine times we see this word in the Greek appear, eremos. Eremos means a quiet, still, solitary place. And Eremos was the place that the gospel writers continually talked about Jesus withdrawing towards in the midst of the hustle and bustle of his ministry. In fact, at the very beginning of Mark chapter 1, we see him record and rising very early in the morning while it was still dark. Jesus departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. This verse comes on the heels of Mark revealing that Jesus has just spent a lot of time casting out demons and healing many people of their various diseases. And despite no doubt being exhausted from such toil and care of people, Jesus still understands the need to be still with his Father. The Gospel writer Luke also records this when he says, but Jesus would often withdraw to desolate places and pray. The context of this verse being that Jesus' influence and fame is growing, and Jesus understanding the need to be attentive to people and to his soul does not neglect the rest and silence his soul so desperately needs. 
and the result of Jesus finding this eremos of continually withdrawing to be still is reflected in a lifestyle of being unhurried. This is never more clear than in the Gospel of John when Jesus' friend Lazarus is sick and John records this, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment, wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then, after this, he said to his disciples, Let us go to Judea again. Jesus, so sure of his purpose and the timing for his ministry that he never hurried, he never rushed. Yes, his good friend was dying, but Jesus trusted in his father's plan for him. God's plan was, yes, to raise Lazarus from the dead, but only when the time was right. Jesus' patience and lack of rush and hurry is emblematic of the silence, rest, and therefore trust that, God can, that Jesus continually found in his time with his Father. And while, yes, Jesus shows us the real meaning of Sabbath, yes, Jesus provides for us examples to rest, the Bible is clear that Jesus doesn't just provide us ways to rest in God because Jesus is our rest in God. God and his eternal rest are now accessible through the person of Jesus. And he brings, this to the heart, he brings us to the heart of this in the book of Matthew when Jesus is speaking with his disciples and loved ones. We hear this. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Friends, this again for some of us today who might be feeling anxious, overwhelmed, burdened by life. I pray that this is what your soul needed this morning. To understand that, again, this, this, this verse, which can also be translated, all who have become weary, all of you who have been struggling, all of you who have been toiling away at life, you can find rest in me. Jesus understands that humanity, being human, is hard, it's busy, it's exhausting, it's stressful. And for this reason, he lays this promise before us that if we would have the audacity to come before him and bring our hurt, bring our frustration, bring our anxiety, bring our toil, and lay it before him, take off the yoke of those things, put it at the foot of the cross, when we give those up, his promise is rest. And this rest is both a present reality as well as an eschatological, an eternal rest that when we put our hope and faith in Jesus, we get to experience peace that surpasses understanding both now and forever. And the yoke, this, this, and Jesus, uh, the word yoke here that Jesus uses was a device put on animals to help them shoulder heavy loads while working. And often scripture uses the yoke as a metaphor for discipleship. 
Jesus is encouraging people away from the exhaustion which comes from following religious structures, rigid religious structures, self-righteous leaders, as well as the false idols of culture, and instead to follow him. Now this yoke that Jesus is asking us to take upon him does require work. It requires us to stop toiling away at the the things that we think will give us rest and instead put our hope, our faith, our lives in the hands of Jesus to live for him, to love others the way he calls us to love them. But this work, this offering that he lays before us is the greatest privilege imaginable. The yoke that we often take upon ourselves today where we think we find rest and life, be they social media, binge-watching shows, pornography, retail therapy, alcohol, drugs, money, escapist vacations. These yokes may temporarily dull the anxiety, the pain, the exhaustion we feel in life, but will never give us the rest our bodies and our souls crave. No, it is only the yoke of Jesus, the discipleship, and the life that he invites us towards, which gives us full life. Douglas Webster, in his book, The Easy Yoke, sums up the invitation Jesus offers us through himself when he says, Apart from the grace of Christ and the saving work of the cross, it would be impossible to convince people that the easy yoke is doable, let alone easy. But for those who live under the yoke, there is absolutely no other way to live. Who in their right mind would go back to the gods of self, money, lust, and power? Who would return on bended knee to the shrines of pious performance and judgmentalism? Is not love better than hate? Purity better than lust? Reconciliation better than retaliation? Is not better really easier when measured in character rather than convenience? Rest for the soul rather than selfish pride. Such is the rest and full life which comes only from Jesus' easy yoke of discipleship. And we see the author of Hebrews give a summation of what rest in Jesus looks like when he writes, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his work as God did from his Hebrews, the the, the first verses of Hebrews 4 are a challenge for us, the reader, to reflect upon our spiritual condition. Have we paid attention to the needs of our spirit and participated in the yoke Jesus is inviting us to carry with him? Or have we wandered away trying to take upon the yokes of rest that our culture promises us yet fall short and feel desolate, anxious, tired, in a desert wilderness. Here, the author of Hebrews is once again encouraging and challenging us as the reader that true rest comes only from rightly relating to God through faith and obedience to his word. To sum up our need for rest in Jesus, the great 4th century theologian Augustine wrote, You have made us for yourself, O God, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Now, tied to the question of Sabbath and resting, we go back, God says, on the seventh day we must rest, so when do we Sabbath? Is it a sin to not Sabbath? God commands it. Are we breaking the law if we're not resting? 
Well, Jesus is clear again that legalistic adherence to one day is not what he wants. He wants us to rest and delight and be still. So no, a strict Sabbath day is not necessary. Paul says as much to answer this question in Romans chapter 5, or Romans 14, 5, when he writes, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Again, some of us, especially in the busy culture we live in, we don't have the privilege of rest. We don't have the opportunity to give our souls the full amount of time they need to recharge. Our church is full of nurses, emergency workers, parents of young children, single parents, parents who are working multiple jobs just to provide enough food to put on the table. Life is hard, and Jesus understands that, and why this is not why this is a legalistic yoke. But this also doesn't mean that we shouldn't do everything we can to lean into the invitation of rest God is laying before us. So in the midst of the hustle and bustle, what do we do? We must first take a, a, an honest look at our lives and unhurry them. Ask ourselves if we're constantly rushing from one event to another, filling our calendar with things because we're believing the cultural lie that doing is better than just being. Are we constantly rushing from one activity to another because we think that in that we find worth? Oftentimes, too, when we're in our hurry, when we're in our state of running from one thing to another and our, our, our calendars are so packed with things and we're not finding rest, our biggest regrets come from these moments in our lives. The times in our lives when we've been hurried have often been the ones where we've made rash decisions, said hurtful things to loved ones and others, Given that person who had the audacity to drive the speed limit a piece of our minds? Or maybe even you said, you said things you regret hurrying to church this morning, right? Your kids weren't getting ready in time. They were playing with everything else other than going out the door. And you're like, listen, we're going to go to church right now. Otherwise, you're going to meet Jesus a whole lot sooner than you thought. And then you get into the church parking lot and you see our greeters and they're like, how are you? And you go, oh, we're blessed and our, your kids are like, are you kidding me? You just threatened to kill me. <laughs> right? No, we, we spend so much time doing and not nearly enough time being. And again, it's easy with so much material, social, and technological ability at our fingertips. We overly indulge in these things that aren't necessarily bad, but we do so at the expense of our souls. No, we need to create healthy margins, remembering that every time we say yes to something, it's a thousand no's to other things. Again, I'm a people pleaser. I struggle with this. No is a very difficult word in my, in my vocabulary. But the reality is, is oftentimes the things I say yes to come at the expense of rest and those I love most. And again, I think we've all uttered the phrase, there's just not enough hours in the day. But if we're honest with ourselves, time doesn't need to change. We do. We're finite human beings who can't do everything, and someone needs to hear this today. That's okay. 
Rather, we need to make better use of the time God has given us to live into the 24-7 that we can't escape from, that's unchanging, and use it well. And once we've kind of gone through the cobwebs of our lives and untangled them and created margin, then we need to insert into that margin abiding rest. This doesn't just happen, as the phrase goes, uh, unscheduled time fritters away. Abiding in Jesus must be scheduled and it must be practiced. And again, I, I don't know who needs to hear this, but abiding rest is not sitting still on the couch scrolling through our phones or dads sitting on the toilet for 15 minutes on our phones. Preaching to myself. <clears throat> Technology does not allow our brains to slow down and rest. Our bodies don't just need to be still. Our minds do as well. And part of that scheduled rest can be what, finding what is your eremos. Is it the car ride on your way to work? Young parents who, again, some of the worst advice I ever got is sleep when the baby sleeps. Right? That's impossible. How does a young parent with a young child find Eremos? The five minutes after they go down for a nap before, yes, the clothes must be washed and the laundry must be done and, and the food's got to be clean, put away and cleaned. That five minutes where you can just be still and say, God, fill my soul. Or the challenge that God laid upon me when I, I chose this question of choosing to wake up at 5.30 in the morning every day, no matter what, to soak in the presence of God before the day begins to find that Eremos and let the stillness with God overflow into my life. And then once we schedule abiding rest, whatever your Eremos looks like, realize that Sabbath is not just a day, but a lifestyle. See, the word Shabbat does not just mean cease or stop. It also means to delight. Six days we work, five days we work, but then maybe one day in your Eremos or the time where you choose to be still, do the thing that delights your soul. Right? What, a better question is, what gives feast to your mind, your heart, your body? For my wife and I, we, we started practicing uh, a Shabbat, a ceasing on Fridays, where we turn off all the devices in our house. No phones, no screens, no TVs, no Wi-Fi. If we want to go somewhere and we don't know where it is, can't look it up, too bad. Right? But what we found is we scheduled out our other six days so that our Seventh day, our resting would be full of delight. And we've started this tradition where at the end of every single Friday after dinner, we roll out cookie dough into a pie pan, put it in the oven, throw some vanilla ice cream on top of it when it comes out, and delight our souls in cookie pie. <laughs> a feast for our souls. This invitation is not legalistic adherence to a day to just sit still, study God's word. Yes, those are good things. But it's an, also an invitation to come to the table, to taste, see that the God of the universe is good and worthy of our lives, worthy of the yoke that he offers to us. So friends, I want to come back to the question that I asked you at the very beginning. How are you? Is your soul at peace? Or maybe like a lot of us, is it frazzled? Are you exhausted from rubbing against the grain of culture which causes anxiety and hurry and busyness, desperate for your souls to be still? That is the gift 
God lays out before us in his word, come to me, all you who rest and labor and toil, and I will give you rest for your souls. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word, which acts as an elixir for our souls to refresh us, to encourage us, to equip us to do good, but also, God, the challenge that you give us to delight our souls in you, to cease from the working and instead to be still, to refresh our finite bodies. God, would you give us the ability this week to find our Eremos, find that abiding rest, to be still, to renew ourselves and to experience full life, which, find, which can be found only in you. It's for your glory that we pray these things. Amen.